You're listening to Perry Noble's Thoughts on leadership, vision, and creativity. For daily insight, please check out perrynoble.com. Well, hello and welcome to the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. My name is Shane and I'll be our host today. And Perry, I'm super excited about today's topic because we're going to talk about a book that you've written that's coming out this week. I'm excited about it too. It's called Unleash, and uh, man, I, I can't I can't believe this is finally happening. Yep, it's here, and we're going to spend some time talking about it today because one, uh, it's a book that we feel is important for every church leader to read, uh, to get if they lead a church to get their people to read because the subtitle of this book is Breaking Free from Normalcy. None of us want to live a normal life in leadership or in following Jesus, and so you've written a book about this, and I'm excited to talk about it today. Oh man, it's gonna be it's gonna be so cool, and so let's dive right in. But but before we dive in, there's one thing you want to talk about, or do you want me to talk about? Now, it? Let me talk about it first, and then I'll let you talk about it. Okay. And then I may talk about it a little bit more, and then maybe you'll talk about it, and then eventually everybody will know what we're talking about. I, I think that's a great idea. All right. So here we go. The one thing that we want to make sure everybody gets today is we are going to have an unleash your leadership um, workshop, which is P- leadership coaching by Perry Noble. February 18th through the 20th, three days. Two th- uh, did I say 2013? Maybe that's 2013. 2013, February 18th through 20th. Because uh, that would be awesome if we could do it in 2012. <laughs> we're just, you're just going to back up and do we're it. We're going to get in the DeLorean. We're going <laughs> to crank up the flux capacitor and get some it's, gigawatts. It's, yeah, 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> Sorry. So, anyway, what people need to know about this is people are already signing up because we announced this at the New Spring Leadership Conference last week. Uh, the first 50 get in. First 50 to go to unleash.cc backslash unleash your leadership can sign up there online. First 50, $850, three days leadership coaching for Perry Noble. What do they need to know about that, Perry? Uh, everything you just said. I mean, it's, 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 pure just leadership teaching um there's i mean it's not really a conference atmosphere we just sit at round tables and, and i just walk people through um several days worth of what the lord i feel like has taught me some stuff i'm learning um some stuff i'm still trying to hash out so it's it's a lot of fun i highly recommend it you cover topics such as uh taking care of the financial problems of your church yep sunday sermon preparation yep um, how to get your church beyond uh, the plateau it's reached right now. Yep. I mean, on and on and on, great leadership. and Overcoming over the- overcoming the three assumptions. There are three assumptions that every church has that can absolutely destroy it if it doesn't move past it, and that's one of my favorite talks is overcoming the three assumptions. You want to be a part of that. We've heard um, feedback over the years from this leadership coaching uh, that you do, and pastor after pastor after pastor lets us know that their church was able to move way beyond what they thought after hearing this coaching. So you guys, first 50 people to sign up, $850, February 18th through the 20th, 2013. So with that, let's move on to today's topic. Unleash, breaking free from normalcy. Barry, what I thought we would do today is I just want to give everybody sort of an overview of what the book's about, and we'll hit some leadership things as we go along. But what we're going to do is just I'm going to throw out the uh, chapter title, and I want you to give everybody sort of a Whatever you want to tell them about that, and we'll just kind of see where this thing goes. Absolutely. So uh, with that, uh, the book opens up with a short intro, There's Got to Be More to Life Than This. Right. Why did you want to write that? Well, I wrote that because um, the, whole, the whole thing starts off with the time I borrowed my mother-in-law's Mustang. And automatically you know it's going to be a great story when you say, I borrowed my mother-in-law's Mustang. But um, I drove it around all day, and at the end of the day I decided to punch it and to see if it had any power. And I did. And it had a 
lot of power. I mean, it got sideways on me. The tires were screaming. It was great. And I, the more I thought about that, I was like, you know, that's how a lot of us live life, where we just kind of go through the motions. But I think if you're a Christian, if Jesus Christ lives in you, then the same power that brought Jesus from the dead lives in us. But I think the problem is we don't step on the gas enough in life. And so that's why I wrote this book. It's it's to... I want I want as many people as possible to really live a life that beyond anything they've ever imagined, and so that was part of the premise for for writing this book. So great! That's a great segue into chapter one, uh, which is entitled "Showing Up at the Dance." Yes. What does that mean? What's that about? Well, uh, I opened up with a story about how when I was in middle school, um, I, I went to every dance. It's back when back in the day when Michael Jackson's Thriller album. You remember that, Shane? Oh um, yeah. Yeah. And so it, it, that was back in the day, and uh, I just I would go to every middle school dance, but I never danced. I never came. I stood against the wall. Now I admired people that danced. Sometimes I'd criticize people that danced, but I would never ever dance. And the whole idea behind this chapter is, you know, I know so many Christians, kind of like the Mustang illustration. That's what we do in life. We stand against the wall. We wish we could have greater things, but we don't. We don't really. We don't really launch ourselves off the wall. We, we're, we're too scared. There's fear. There's frustration. There's things that typically hold us back. And, um, and, and we, think that, we think that God wants us against the wall, but God hasn't called us to stand against the wall. God's called us to get off the wall and dance. Um, one of the lines I have in this book is uh, that God wants to hear us laugh. He's not after our begrudging submission. He's after our joy. And so many people think by turning their life completely over to the Lord that, that He's going to make things worse. He's going to hold out on them. But actually, we miss so much by not completely surrendering our lives to the Lord. And so that's what this chapter is all about. I love that. I want to ask you one question in pertaining to leadership from another quote from this chapter. You write, if we have faith, we can move mountains instead of spending our days feeling crushed by them. Right. I know there's so many leaders that have so much on them, they feel like they can't move forward or they're under the weight of so much. Talk about that and encourage our leaders that are listening. In, in, the, um, in the Bible... Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And I think one of the things that leaders lack so much, so many times is faith. I know, and I don't say that as a crack, I've lacked that many times in my own life where you know the right decision, but it actually takes faith to pull the trigger on that decision. And uh, sometimes we, knowing the right thing to do doesn't make you a great leader doing the right thing makes you a leader. And uh, there's a big difference between knowing and doing, and I think that's what separates leaders from great leaders, is leaders know what to do. Great leaders do what they know they should do. Mm, that's good. Let's jump to chapter two. It's another great uh, chapter for life and leadership, the performance trap. Talk yes. about that chapter a little bit. Man, this chapter comes because I was so locked in the legalism for so long in my life. I thought that my behavior really did dictate God's blessings on my life, God's um, favor in my life, God's love in my life. I really, really believed that for so long. And so I got really trapped into the, hey, I don't go to R-rated movies, and I don't say cuss words unless I make up, but like Christian cuss words, you know, we, we, we would make them up. Um, but it wasn't bad. Um, and, and I finally, finally, finally realized, and Shane, this was only s several years ago, um, one of the quotes from this chapter is, God's love cannot be achieved, it can only be received. Mm. 
And that fi- when that, when the reality of that finally hit me, I think it hit me when Karis, my my daughter, was born, where I didn't know how I was going to love her. Um, I was nervous because you know Lucretia and I, my wife, we it took time to develop a relationship with her, and we dated, and we got to know each other. And I was really nervous when Karis, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to love her? How am I going to love her? How am I going to love her? And like, I remember being in the delivery room and she's born and the doctor holds her up. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's how that happens. It wasn't, she didn't do anything. In fact, the first year of her life, she did probably as much as possible to get me not to love her. I mean, she was crapping and pooping and and peeing all over everything. And she's always wanting to be fed and three o'clock in the morning and stuff. I mean, it was crazy, but it seemed like that caused me to love her more, as, as crazy as that is. And so, you know, the most common metaphor that Jesus uses for God in the Scriptures is not mysterious, although He is mysterious. It is not, you know, magnificent, although He is magnificent. The most common metaphor that Jesus used was Father. And I'm like, man, that I, I'm, I'm trying to get... I'm trying to view God as a Father, and bringing that back around, the lessons I've learned from my daughter in that have been breathtaking. That's really good. Let's move to chapter 3, key uh, in living, obviously. Chapter 3 is entitled, Moving Past Your Past. Right. Talk about that. Well, in my opinion, chapter 3 might have the most hilarious story in the book. It's the time I farted in Taran's face, (laughs) and... Um, yeah, you're just going to have that's to... That's worth re- getting the book yeah, just by itself. That, that, and that's a true story. That's legit. And um, I, So anyway, it, it just talks about how past mistakes shouldn't dominate you. In fact, and I've thrown this out on Twitter a few times, and it always gets tons of retweets. If you don't let your past die, then it won't let you live. And I know so many people that are Christians, but they can't... You know, maybe it was that one event that they did in the past, or maybe it was that season. Maybe it was, you know, spring break. Maybe it was whatever. But I just see so many people standing against the wall, if you will, refusing to dance because, you know, of something that they've done in their past that they think disqualifies them. And uh, it, it's just, every, you know, as I read the Bible, everybody that God used was completely screwed up. And so. Um, I just wrote this chapter to encourage people that have a past um, on how to get how to get past it. One of the quotes from this chapter, Perry, I love. It says, "The facts of God's word always trump the feelings in our hearts." Yes. So how you know often you know in life and in leadership we get surrounded or we get in a situation where we feel like we can't move forward or we feel like we're trapped by our past. Talk about uh, maybe how you as a leader lean into the promises of God to move forward in leadership. Okay, so Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, for a church leader, that is a verse to hold on to. That is a promise. That is a promise from God's Word. And God's Word always trumps the way we feel because I'll be honest with you, as a leader, there have been days when something goes wrong, an event goes wrong, a series goes wrong, we make a bad hire, a bad decision is made that I, that I don't feel like a great leader. There's just going to be days where you don't feel like a great husband. You don't feel like a great wife or mom, or you don't you don't feel like you've, you're doing a good job. And the enemy, this what's so crazy about the enemy, is he is going to attack those feelings because he knows feelings control emotions, emotions control behaviors, behaviors ultimately control destinies. I've never said that before. That was, that awesome. was freaking amazing. Dang, I just we'll amended myself. That. So, but that that's true. 
And so because the enemy knows that fe- that feelings control people so much, um, he I think I believe he plays on feelings. But there's just days when I've got to choose as a leader to trust Jesus said he would build his church, mm-hmm. and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. No weapon formed against me will prosper. Um, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Like I've got to hold on to those promises, knowing that God is good, and he cannot give his children a bad gift. That's so good. He is a good father. Uh, chapter 4 in the book is titled, The Great American Lie. Ooh, that, that has the story about snow snakes in it. <laughs> Tell us about the great American lie. Snow snakes are legit. You better fear snow snakes, and that's all I'm going to tell you about them, because, dude, and they don't bite. That's all I can say. Um, the great American lie is this, and I never will forget this. I was invited to be a guest speaker at a church. I, I mean, I, I can see it like it was yesterday. And I was going to preach against the great American lie. But before I could get on stage, the woman doing the special, like there, you know, there's a special yeah. number before the guest speaker gets up. The woman doing the special actually said the great American lie out of her mouth. <laughs> she took the microphone and she looked at the audience and she said, if you're here today, I want you to know that if you try really hard and believe in yourself, you can do anything you want to do. And that's the great American lie. If you believe in yourself and try really hard, you can do anything. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, we love to, it, it makes you feel good for self-esteem, but um, if, if I believed in myself and tried really hard, I could not be a horse jockey. I mean, the horse would be, <laughs> he would be pissed by the time we came out of the first turn at me because I'm six foot six and I weigh 225 pounds. He'd be like, hey, bro, I should be on your back. <laughs> so like that, that's just not true. If I believed in myself and tried really hard, I could not dunk a basketball. I couldn't. I cannot dunk. White men can't jump. It's it's a reality. So um, the great American lie is if you just apply yourself, you can try really hard. The best example of that is American Idol. Um, the tryouts, when people get on there and they think they can sing. Um, because somebody told them, if you believe in yourself and try really hard, you can sing. And, oh, it, I've heard cows dying in hailstorms that sound better than some of the people that get on that show and try to sing. So just, it's a great American lie. It's, and it's, it's so prevalent in our country. Parents tell their kids this. Mm-hmm. If you believe in yourself, you can. No, no, they can't. You're, no, your, your kid will never play Major League Baseball. They can't hit the ball, you know? So anyway, I could, I could go on for days you about could, that chapter. I love the fact that you're too big to ride a horse, but too white to dunk a basketball. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's awesome. White man can't jump, man. Um, but let me ask you this. Uh, all of us at some point have fallen for the great American lie. Right. I would be willing to bet a lot of leaders listeners feel like, you know what, I thought I could do this. Maybe I'm in a place I shouldn't be. Uh, what would you say to the leader out there that's listening and say, you know what, I, I don't know that I'm really where God wants me to be. I fell victim to this great American lie. What would, you, what would be your encouragement to them to just own up to that and, and get into what God has made them for? I would say, as a leader, that the best thing you can do is do the last thing that you know God told you to do. Like, you're not being disobedient until God tells you to do something and you say no. Um, and if you're at a place in your leadership where you feel like, man, I thought I could do this, or I thought I wanted to do this. I remember one time I thought I wanted to do children's ministry. <laughs> Legit, I was a part-time youth pastor, and if I was, if I would take a part-time children's pastor job in this church, that they would make me full-time. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. 
And it took about two weeks in children's ministry to realize, oh, dear Lord, I, I don't want to do this. Like, I have no desires to do this. And I did it for two more years thinking, well, maybe I need to learn how to suffer for God or something like that. But it was it was, it was was just bad. I mean, I just didn't, you know, I didn't enjoy it, and I don't think I did a great job at it. So I finally, you know, had to go to my pastor and say, listen, man, I don't know if this is going to mean I lose my job or go back to part-time or whatever, but... I've got to be honest with you and tell you that I'm not the best person to lead this children's ministry. We've got somebody in our church, I'm sure, that could do it better. And um, he actually moved me into college ministry, which um, actually lit a fire and a passion in me. I had no idea I was passionate for college students. And um, it actually, several steps later, was when we launched New Spring Church. Mm-hmm. So by willing, being willing to admit, hey, I don't think I'm where I need to be, um, it literally, God used that as a launching pad to propel me into what I needed to be doing. That's a word for somebody out there. Yep. Uh, chapter 5, moving on. Oh, crucial, yeah. t- crucial chapter. Talk about that. I think chapter 5 for a lot of people could be the most impactful chapter in the book because we've all got um, an issue with someone or a group of people in our past. The, the, the chapter is entitled moving on, but it's about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. It's about forgiving people, about releasing the debt um, that you feel like they owe you. And it's forgiveness is hard. And everybody that I've ever talked to that has somebody in their past that has hurt them or wounded them has a sad story. And I'm not making fun of that. It's a legitimate sad story. Like if you hear it, it breaks your heart. But at the end of the day, as a follower of Christ, we're called to offer forgiveness to people who have hurt us and wounded us. And when we don't forgive people, that literally is a lid on our growth as far as our walk with God. It doesn't matter how many times we read the Bible, how many songs we sing, how many Bible verses we memorize, how many times we go to church, if we serve in the church. If, if we refuse to forgive those who have wounded us, we've literally given God the middle finger and told Him, hey, I'm going to receive the forgiveness that you offered me, even though I didn't deserve it, you know, but the person that's hurt me and wounded me, well, God, they, they hurt me more than I hurt you. And so I'm not going to offer them that forgiveness. And that's just, um, a lot of people say, I, I deal with it in this chapter. Well, I don't feel like forgiving them. Well, forgiveness is not a feeling. Remember, you can't rely on feelings. Forgiveness is a choice. And sometimes it's a daily choice. Today, I choose to forgive that person. Today I choose to forgive that person. Today I choose to forgive that person. It's something that we've got to be willing to do over and over and over again. Let me just read three section titles from this this chapter. You're talking about how to forgive those who hurt you. You say you have to deal with the hurt. You have to deal with the desire to handle it yourself. And you have to deal with the desire to have it your way immediately. Yes. Just kind of bunch those together and talk about just dealing with the fact that forgiveness isn't easy there's gonna it's gonna take steps yeah the whole the last point dealing with the desire to have it immediately when somebody hurts you when somebody hurts me i want to see immediate repercussion like i want to see that like i, I want to see that but you know the bible says that god is a god of justice and so when we learn to hand problems over to him he will handle um business in his time the bible says in ecclesiastes three eleven, he makes all things beautiful in his time. His time is better than my time. And part of wrestling through the forgiveness issue is understanding that God 
um, is going to like if somebody hurts my daughter, if somebody wounds my daughter as her father, I'm going to take care of that. I will handle that. Well, if you are a child of God and somebody's hurt you or wounded you, in his time, God is a God of justice. You've just got to back off of that and go, God, I trust, I completely trust you with this situation, and uh, I'm going to forgive that person. That's a good word. Chapter 6, Triumph Over Tragedy. What's this chapter about? Um, So many people allow tragedies in their life to hold them back from really stepping into the life that God has for them. Uh, for example, I start out the chapter, um, the first sentence in, the, in this chapter, my mother died of cancer when I was 12 years old. And, you know, that, that was a tragedy. And it, it, it was awful. It sucked. It was not good. Um, I did not enjoy, um, I didn't enjoy that, and I didn't enjoy all the Christians that wanted to tell me that Romans 8 says all things work for the good. And I'm like, well, I, I know Romans 8, I'm hurting right now. Okay, hold on to Romans eight for for a little while. I'm and I'm there. I believe it, but you know, and they were well meaning. Um, they ju- I just wanted to shoot them in the foot with a shotgun. Um, so th- the whole anyway, the whole tragedy thing is people want to allow tragedy in their life um, to say, okay, well, uh, my parents died, or my parents were divorced, or I was molested, or I had a bad car wreck, or you know this. And, and listen. I can't define tragedy for somebody. But if somebody feels like a tragic event took place in their life, then I'm going to go ahead and agree and say, yes, that was tragic. Everything I just listed, tragic, horrible, got me worst situation possible. But are you going to allow that event to define you? Or are you going to allow God's Word and God's promises to define you? Because too many people are victims to their past, and victims, especially guys... Victims are not attractive. Somebody that complains about something that happened to them that's holding them back from where God wants them to go, um, it's it's a pathetic excuse to remain a victim. And listen, I can feel sorry for you in the moment. I can feel sorry for you for another week or month. But if you're still using, my mother died when I was a kid, when you're 40, I'm sorry. That's old. We've got to learn to get past that. And in Christ, and only in Christ, I say, um, tragedy can be turned into triumph because he turned a wooden cross into an empty tomb. Only Jesus can do that. And if Jesus did that for himself, imagine what he could do for people that are experiencing tragic um, things in life. He, he can totally turn that into a, a triumph. Uh, there's one quote from this chapter I love because you take this this attitude and you talk about how it actually attacks our belief. You say this, are we going to allow circumstances to determine our belief in God or are we going to allow our belief in God to reign over our circumstances? Very, very different vantage point. Right. Talk about that. Well, the, it's, it's the question, um, do I allow circumstances to shape my theology or do I allow theology to shape my circumstances? Because... If you start with a belief that God is sovereign and that God is good, um, then everything that happens to us is coming out of the fact that God is great and God is good. I think I heard Stephen Furtick say one time, God is great and God is good. If God was great and God wasn't good, we, would, we should fear for our lives. Yep. But because God is great and because God is good, which, by the way, that's the prayer we learned when we were kids, God is great, God is good, let us thank you for our food. 
um, because that's the prayer we learned. We can rest in the fact that everything that happens to me in Christ is, is it's going to be it's going to be good. Everything that happens to me, or we can say, like so many people that I've talked to in the past, you know, twenty two years of ministry. Well, I don't think God's a good God. Why? Well, because I lost my mother. Because my house burned down. Because my dad was arrested for doing drugs. Because um, uh, I had to spend some time homeless. Okay. By the way, all those things happen to me. But at the end of the day, God is good. If we if we allow our circumstances to dictate who God is, then ultimately we think we're God. Right. I think God's good as long as He does good things to me. Uh, that's not scripturally accurate. I think God is good, period. Period. Okay, Paul got his head cut off. Peter was crucified upside down. And both of those men... I'm quite positive when we get to heaven, are not going to say, yeah, I think God really screwed me on that one. Mm. No, I think they'll say God's good. Yeah, that's good. Uh, the next chapter number seven is, uh, we've already talked about the great American lie. This would be the great devilish lie, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's posed in the form of a question, more than we can handle? Yeah. Talk about that chapter. I think the biggest lie in the church, the biggest lie in America is you can do anything you want to do. Um, the biggest lie in the church, and this is the one that'll create maybe a little controversy, I'm not sure. Here's the biggest lie in the church, the church tells today. God will never put more on you than you can handle. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I mean, it really is. Because, and and, and, and let me back off, because I know somebody just went to their computer to send an email. (laughs) Um, I know where you get that. People get that from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, no temptation can seize you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide for you a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's, that verse says God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. It does not say that God will not put more on us than we can handle. In fact, on several occasions, um, Elijah sat down under a tree and asked God to kill him. Um, Jesus prayed, Father, can you let this cup pass from me? Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I think, chapter 1, we were in overwhelming circumstances, even circumstances beyond our ability, our ability to endure it. So there are multiple examples in the Scripture of overwhelming circumstances happening to people. Um, and, and if God never allowed more to be put on us than we could handle, then why in the world would we ever think we need Him? That's right. I believe with all my heart that God will allow more to be put on us than we can handle because it drives us to our knees because we finally realize that we're desperate for someone more powerful than we are. And when we believe the lie that God will never put more on us than we can handle, and then more gets put on us than we can handle, once again, that goes back to the last chapter where we think God's a bad God because how could He do this? Because I remember I remember standing beside my mother's coffin and people from the church going, well, you know, you know, the Bible says God will never put more than you can handle. And I'm like, well, I remember thinking as a 12-year-old, well, the Bible must be wrong because this is a lot more than I can handle. Um, and I, it, it was such a comfort for me when I finally discovered the Bible doesn't say that. It does not say that. Um, so anyway. Well, don't you think, I mean, the reality is if God never let us have more on us than we could handle, like you said before, he wouldn't be necessary. He wants to show out. 
Absolutely. He wants to show out for his kids. So, I mean, there's no way that uh, he's just going to set, set aside and just make life always easy. You say um, one thing, you know, this usually works itself out through our pain. And you, there's one quote from this chapter that says, only God is able to take our pain and use it for progress. Talk right. about that. Well, th- the whole thing with the the bad events that have happened in my life, I look back and I can see how God used them as a launching pad to propel me into a greater knowledge of Him or to propel me towards Him or to propel me into a greater relationship with Him. Um, and so, so God... Only God has that ability to turn something supernaturally bad into something supernaturally awesome. Mm. So good. Chapter 8, take your next step. Yes. Talk about that. Um, I think one of, our, one of our core values here at New Spring Church is that um, our, our, actually our mission statement, our vision statement is New Spring Church is a church where change takes place. And I, I wrote this chapter because... I've been in church world now for a couple decades, and you look around and you see people go to church, and they've been in church for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they're still mean, and they're still ornery, or they're still cranky. And I'm like, man, at some point, people stopped growing. And in church world, we we equate growth with knowledge, like how much do you know about the Bible? And the more I know about the Bible, the more spiritually mature I am. Which, if that's the litmus test for spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, then we should all aspire to be like Satan. That's right. Because he knows more Scripture than anybody. I mean, he really does. I mean, he's got the Bible. He even used the Bible trying to tempt Jesus. And so I don't think that knowledge equals spiritual maturity. I think application of knowledge equals spiritual maturity. And so, and one of the quotes I have in this chapter is, Christianity is not so much about what we've done, but rather who we are becoming. And uh, I think one of the things that we lose sight on is Christianity is, is not that tough when we, when we simply focus on the fact that all the Lord is calling us to do is take our next step. What is your next step? Is your next step to confess a particular sin? Is your next step to receive Christ? Is your next step to go public with that decision? Is your next step to ask with help in your marriage? Is your next step to surrender your money to God? Is your next step to forgive someone? Whatever that next step is, that's what that's what we are called to do in our relationship with Christ. And until we do that, we're stuck. And I think so many people get stuck because they go, well, I'm not going to do what God's asking me to do. Well, you're stuck if that's the case. And so I just wrote this chapter in the hopes that people would step into their next step. It's one of my favorite chapters in the book for sure. Awesome. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I love I love the talking about dealing with what's now before God will give you what's next. Yep. Uh, chapter 9, this is another one of our core values here at New Spring, is we can't do life alone. Right. Talk about that chapter. One of the lies that um, people believe is that, hey, here's the deal. Um, I'm good all by myself. I don't really need anybody. And that's just not true. Um, it's not modeled for us in the Scriptures. Even Jesus surrounded himself with a group of 70, then a group of 12, then a group of three, then he had one he loved. I mean, it. we all need godly people in our life to help us achieve our maximum potential. Because there's some days... Um, in fact, I shared this with uh, you guys, Shane, in a recent creative meeting. When I first became a Christian... For the first three or four years of my life, it was not my Bible knowledge that kept me solid because I didn't know that much. 
it wasn't um, the worship music at our church because I went to a traditional church and we had a choir and they were great, but you know, I wasn't jamming a choir CD in my car. Actually, I had a tape player, so I wasn't jamming choir tapes. Um, it wasn't uh, anything that we might say. The, the thing that kept me close in my relationship with Christ were the friends at church where I was like, man, I can't screw up because if I do, I'm going to have to face those guys. And I had people that loved me enough to call me out on stuff when I was I was screwing something up. And that's what held me together. And it's what holds me together today. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been times that I've chose not to sin simply because I did not, I would not want to face the people that are closest to me in my life and confess that I did something wrong. Well, let's, let's talk about leadership in this regard, too. So many leaders feel isolated, feel like they have no person to lean into. Share some wisdom with our listeners, especially those in leadership positions, about the importance of having people around you or people you can reach out to to listen to you or give you some counsel, give you some guidance, help with wisdom, whatever it takes to keep moving forward in leadership. I used to believe a lie about leadership. And here's, here was the lie, and uh, this will... This might ruffle some feathers. Um, it's lonely at the top. And it, I finally discovered it's only lonely at the top if you didn't bring anybody with you. If you slowed down the journey and you actually brought people with you, it's probably not that lonely. Um, now, I know, I know leaders deal with loneliness. I know leaders deal with feelings of isolation. I know we we all wrestle with that. I wrestle with that. Um, every leader I know wrestles with that. But at the end of the day, God did not call a leader to do to do it by themselves. You look at any leader in the Bible, you look at any leader in modern day society, especially church leadership, they did not get to where they are by themselves. It's kind of like I heard a guy say one time, if you drive by, if you're riding down a country road and you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know that turtle had some help getting on top of that fence post. And every great leader, all we really are is a turtle on a fence post. We did not get there by ourselves. Um, and so, it, you know, any leader, you, you didn't get on top of that fence post by yourself. Somebody... Um, God brought great godly men and women around you that helped you get to that place in leadership. So you can't you can't do life alone. That's good. Um, and one thing I'm just going to add about this, Perry, I know you reached out. You reached out to leaders to, to mentor you. You reached yep. out to your leadership team. You reached out across the staff. You recognized this fact and took proactive steps. A leader can't just sit and hope that this happens. They've no. got to reach out and ask people to be a part of this. I mean, you can't sit around and go, oh, I wish so-and-so would call me. Call them! Oh, I wish so-and-so would recognize... No, 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 it's not going to happen. If you need help, ask for help. If you're feeling lonely, get your team around you and go, guys, I'm lonely. Can we go shoot pool? Can we, like, you know, I don't know. I mean, can we go do something together? I mean, it. if you're a leader and you're lonely... At the end of the day, as hard as this is, it's because you've chosen to be lonely. That's good. Here we are, chapter 10, final chapter in the book, Crossing the Finish Line. Yes. What do you want to share about that? Well, it starts off with a story about a vacation that didn't quite turn out the way um, uh, I thought it would, but it kind of comes down to at some time, sometime in life, especially in our Christian walk, we want to quit. We just want to give up. We want to throw in the towel. And there may be somebody listening going, well, I've never really wanted to quit on God. Well, 
you probably got saved five minutes ago because um, it, it's hard. The Christian life is not easy. It's, it's tough. It's difficult. Um, one of the quotes that I have in here is, Jesus didn't ask us to pick up our recliner and follow him. He asked us to pick up our cross. And, and that's one of the things that we misunderstand. And so a lot of people drop out of the race because the, they feel like the race is too hard. But at the end of the day, we're all called to cross um, the finish line and, and not play it safe. And so that's what this chapter is, um, is all about. Um, and finally, uh, the book closes with a little epilogue, Hold On To Your Fork. Right. What do you want to share about that as we conclude today's podcast? The, the thing about Hold On To Your Fork is I believe Ephesians 3.20 is just one of those verses I've held on to. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And I literally believe that the best is yet to come. And I kind of talked about this at our NLC conference that just recently take place, took place, which was awesome. And if you missed it and you're like, oh, I feel bad I missed that, you should because <laughs> it was amazing. There was just not a bad speaker it's all not, day. I mean, day. good gosh, I learned something from every speaker that was profound. I was impacted on – anyway, so what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Ephesians 320. There we go. Um, I have ADD. So one of the things that I talk about – on Twitter or talk about on my blog or on a leadership podcast, and, and people have tried to call me out on this. They're like, oh, man, you're always saying something's going to be the best ever, and you're always saying something's going to be great, and you're always saying something's going to be awesome, and it can't always be the best ever, and it can't always be epic, and it can't always be awesome. And I'm like, why not? Why can't it? Who wants to follow a leader that stands around and goes, follow me because my best days are behind me? Follow me because we had a great idea three years ago. No, 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 no. I want to sit around. I want to follow a leader that talks way more about his dreams than he does his memories. And when we go to the book, I come back to, I really do believe the best is yet to come. I did not say this at NLC. It was in my notes, but I just kind of skipped right over it. You know, Shane, I fought a, I fought a pretty intense battle with depression. Um, a year and a half, two years, two and a half years, something like that. I, and... Every day, the idea that got me out of bed was, today could be the day this breaks through. Mm. There's hope. There's hope for me today. Hope is a powerful, powerful idea. And so I have hope for my future. I have hope for my marriage. I have hope as a dad. I have hope as a leader. I have hope for this church. And I really do believe, I'm 41 years old, I don't believe I've, I've had my best idea yet. I don't believe I've seen my best day in life yet. I don't believe my marriage has seen its best day yet. I don't, I really do believe the best is yet to come. And I feel sorry for the church out there that has to follow a leader that doesn't really think this coming Sunday is going to be the best Sunday ever. I really do believe that. I'm smoking what I'm selling when I say that. And, um, man, I've told people before, if my optimism bothers you, God, just click the unfollow button because I'm going to keep talking about how it gets better. I love it. And that's, you know, that word, that's a perfect word to conclude on. Everybody out there that's listening needs to get this book. Tell your friends to get this book. Buy this book for your church, your family, whoever, because that's what Jesus has called us to, to live a life that uh, believes the best is yet to come. Let me mention the website again, unleashbook.com. Again, that's unleashbook.com. There's all kinds of information about this book. Get out there, get it. It'll be in stores on the 18th of September. Uh, you can order it online, Barnes & Noble, uh, 
Books a Million, Amazon.com. Perry and Noble. I don't know. I'm just I'm, kidding. I was going to say, I don't that's think we have really, that one. That's not really a website. But anyway, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you guys next month, and go get Unleash, Breaking Free from Normalcy.